Hi everyone, it's Michael and this is Monday Morning 8am, our new podcast series that goes out, you guessed it, every Monday. As a reminder, you can listen to the audio version of this every Monday morning at 8am by searching for Strategy Skills, that's Strategy Skills, in any podcast app. You'll find the podcast there. Or if you go to firmsconsulting.com slash promo, that's firms with an S, consulting.com, firms consulting is one word, dot com slash promo, you can get the article version of this podcast, which will have the links to all of the articles and any other material that we reference here. So the objective of this podcast series is to review what's happened in the week and what's happening for the following few months and help our listeners distill the big insights, the big themes from the noise. So here are the big themes we are seeing this week. First, we've got to start with a tribute that goes out to Asia. Specifically, Samsung's former group chairman, Lee Kun-hee, who did what many people thought was impossible. You'd have to go back to the 1980s, 1990s to get a firm sense of the magnitude of the change that has taken place in Korea, South Korea in particular. If you go back to the 1980s and 1990s, that was really the time when Japan Ad swept, some would say starting to sweep, but it had arrived on the global stage. Japanese electronics control the world, for lack of a better word. Japanese influence in media was paramount. Movies like The Karate Kid came out. There were shows about Robocop, about an electronics company taking over parts of America. Japanese conglomerates like Sony were buying into corporate America, also buying into iconic properties in America. At this time, Japan overtook the former Soviet Union as the second largest economy in the world. No one had pretty much heard of Korea at this point. And that's a fact, because we all knew about Japan. If any of us was playing with toys or firecrackers, we'd heard of China because everything was made in China. But Korea was not really on the map as a corporate and economic power or as a cultural icon that it is today. Now, under, some would say, the leadership, the guiding hand of Lee Kan-hee, Samsung went from being an unheard of company to bring South Korea into the limelight, whereby in 2006, it surpassed Sony to become the number one company in the global TV market. And about five years later, I believe it overtook Apple to become the world's biggest smartphone maker. Now, you can go to the Financial Times, you can go to Nikkei Asia, you can go to the Wall Street Journal. All of those publications have done pretty good jobs writing up an obituary of this guy who basically heralded a nation, Korea, into the limelight. So that's a good place to start. And speaking about Asia, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater & Associates has written a pretty good piece in the Financial Times where he talks about how Western consumers, Western corporate leaders, and Western politicians, for lack of a better word, decision makers, we are not really understanding the opportunity that is presented with China. We, for many of us, even though we hear about China, we treat it as if it's something that is not really going to affect us. And what Ray is saying is that we've got to engage China, we've got to understand the opportunity, but more importantly, you've got to understand that the way the United States shaped and will shape the world for the next few decades, China is going to do the same thing. And that's a big shift in the way things work. FT also has a very nice piece about the founder of Uniqlo, the ubiquitous 
Japanese clothing company and the story of how he built this company to compete on affordable but stylish clothing that was quick to market. Now, the objective of this podcast series is to distill out the insights. So what are the insights here? I think a couple of things is you got to ask yourself, if Korea was able to basically transform that economy in the space of 30 to 40 years, that's one generation, what can you do in a generation? A generation is about 30 years. So if you are 20, your genera- a generation for you is when you turn 50. And the question is, what can you do in a generation? What can your family do? What can your business or firm do in one generation? Because for many of us, we go into the workforce hoping just to get a good job, have a good life and retire well. But is that enough? Is that what we should be thinking about doing? And I remember speaking to a um, one-on-one coaching client recently. He used to be in the case interview program. He went into McKinsey. And from McKinsey, he became country leader for Asia for a major electronics manufacturer. And I was having this discussion with him. What is he going to do in a generation? He's very young. He's 30. So his generation for him would be when he's 60. Is it just to become a senior executive in this electronics company, which is by itself a major achievement at his age? Because everyone else at his level of the management committee is about 50. So he's 20 years ahead of them. But those 20 years only matter if he uses them. If time goes by and he does nothing with it, eventually that massive lead time he has will evaporate. So the insight here is not about Korea. It's not about China. It's not about Japan. It's looking at what those countries have done in a very compressed space of time. Because in the case of Korea, they had to survive from the Korean War, which caused a lot of trauma and tragedy. Japan had to rebuild after the ashes of World War II. China has had a pretty difficult period up until very recently, poverty and so on. So those countries have done a lot in a very short space of time. And rather than thinking about them as nations, you've got to ask yourself, how do they do it? They've done tremendous things in the space of 30 or 40 years. Why am I not thinking in that way? The other big theme we have is in the electric auto sector, where Elon Musk of Tesla has said that Tesla wants to get into lithium mining. Now, we can talk about electric cars and mining and so on. But I think the deep insight here is that why would a company backward integrate into the vertical, backward integrate vertically into the value chain, which means it's going upstream. It's moving away from processed finished goods where you get the maximum margin going up the value chain to the manufacturing where you get essentially the lowest margin. Why would a company do that? It's not that Elon Musk wants to go into lithium mining. Why would a company do that? Why would any company do that? And that's what you've got to think about, right? You've got to ask yourself, why is this happening? Why would a company do that? Is he really doing this? Because he believes that Tesla, in this short space of time, is going to learn all of the skills to be an outstanding miner. Look, you could argue that Elon Musk is a smart guy. Maybe he can do it. But the question is, is that the best way for Tesla to deploy, which is fairly limited capital? Should they deploy, let's say, $5 billion to become the best lithium miner? Or should they deploy $5 billion to build more factories in China, in Asia, and build cars that can drive by themselves before I die, which is you know, hopefully what's going to happen. So that's what you've got to think about. It's not that they went into lithium mining. Are they doing it to draw attention to the fact that, you know what, 
if you guys don't do it, our suppliers in lithium mining, we're going to do it. So you better get your act together. So why are they doing it? When a company makes a decision, when a CEO makes an announcement, it's not necessarily them communicating what they want to do. Every time they communicate is an opportunity for them to signal, control, influence, push along, nudge along, suppliers, investors, regulators, and so on. So don't read too much into the lithium announcement. Ask yourself why they want to go upstream, if they want to go upstream, or is this a way for them to communicate and manage suppliers? If they are going upstream, and if you are an insider who happens to have access to our new knowledge management system, you can see how we've analyzed a you can see how we've analyzed a comparable precious metal that's used in the automotive industry to understand where and how disruption could occur in the value chain. And if you're not interested in precious metals, but you are in industry, then you could use this analysis to also understand how disruption could occur for you. So that's in the auto sector. Now, the piece that I particularly found interesting was a piece in the Financial Times about Sanjeev Gupta, who is a, a former, I think, trader who, through a series of debt field acquisitions, built one of the largest conglomerates based out of the UK in manufacturing and industrial goods. I think in the space of three or five years, he did it. Now, what's interesting about Sanjeev Gupta is that whenever people started talking about him initially, I, I've read some of the early pieces but I've heard some analysts use condescending comments like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. It's almost as if because this analyst has never heard of Sanjeev Gupta, it's almost as if Sanjeev Gupta has no credibility. So just because this analyst has not read about him, maybe this analyst doesn't read much, Sanjeev Gupta has no credibility. It reminds me of an interview with a very prominent epidemiologist. I'm not going to name the guy. This was in January. And someone asked him on Bloomberg, uh, you know, what do you think of the COVID virus sweeping through China? And the guy made the comment that I've never heard of this virus. In a way, he's saying just because I've never heard of the virus and I'm this really smart guy, this virus is not threatening. Of course, the virus never got the memo and didn't seem put off by this guy's lack of interest in the virus's fatality rates and obviously swept the world. But one of the things you've got to be careful of when you're reading about young new entrepreneurs is that an easy way to put them down is to say, I've never heard of them. I don't know this person. But that doesn't mean the person is not capable and credible. Now, there's a more deeper insight here. There's a big drumbeat in the press, Financial Times, all the big papers that Coal is passed, oil is passed, gas is passed, steel is a dead business in the West. This reminds me of a time when I was a very young principal, right? This is, um, I think it's my first client as a principal. So I was very young and we we're doing work for a precious metals miner. And this miner, the CEO got up and said that um, we, the company that he represents, need to leave this commodity group in country X, because we cannot generate the returns. There's no future for this commodity in this country. And one of the things he failed to understand is it's not that there's no future for this commodity in this country. There's no future for that company to operate in this commodity in this country given their cost structure. Because another company with a better cost structure that can operate the mines profitably can do just as well with the same mines. It's not that the mines are dead. It's not that the commodity is dead in this country. It's just their cost structure is too bloated. 
And that's effectively what happened. Another client I served was able to very cost-effectively mine that precious metal and become one of the world's largest companies in that industrial group. If you're an insider, you can see how we're doing the same with the startup, the gold miner startup. The gold miner startup is following the same principle. We're going out and talking to established miners where their cost structures become so big or so large that they cannot profitably manage certain mines. But if we come in with a lower cost structure, we can take over those mines and manage it for them. But the insight here is that when someone tells you coal is dead or a sector is dead, that's not true. Coal is not going to be dead for a long, long time. What's likely going to happen, and it's already happening, is that companies who operate in countries where the investor community is very activist or force uh, far-sighted, maybe it's a better way of saying it, uh, progressive, and where the political establishment has the willpower to push through legislation to, to force them to divest, will leave. But what will happen is that entrepreneurs and investors from countries that still need to move up the value chain, and that's most of the world, will buy these assets. And they will take over these assets and manage them profitably. So when you read coal is dead, coal is not dead. Coal is going to be here for a very long time. And someone's going to become, many people are going to become billionaires by managing coal very effectively. But overall, coal is going to become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, but not unprofitable. And that's the thing you've got to understand. So you've always got to think about, you know, what is value, how to think about value and so on. Because in the Western press, we tend to almost sermonize things by saying that because we don't want to do it, or we found a way not to do it, everyone else should find a way to live without coal. And that's not going to be the case. So it's about understanding what is value. What is valuable? If you just read the newspapers, you think there's no value in coal. That's not true. There's a lot of value in coal. You have to understand value. You have to understand how capital moves. There's a good podcast we did with Tim Collar, who is a McKinsey senior partner, wrote the book, co-wrote the book Valuation. He's probably one of the most talented guys on subject of valuation. And what's interesting in that very nice conversation I had with Tim is that many people wanted us to talk about the mechanics of how to do evaluation. What is the best way to work out whack? And Tim will tell you in the podcast, he says, that's not the stuff he wants to talk about when it comes to valuation and corporate finance, because that's the, not the most important thing in corporate finance. The most important thing in corporate finance is understanding that capital is like the blood in a human body. And the job of leadership is to figure out how to deploy that asset. It's like a tool. What's the best way to deploy the tool? What's the best way to take care of the tool? What's the best way to govern that tool? And Tim and I have a very interesting discussion. A great guy. He understands finance, not just from the calculation basis, which is what everyone is interested in, but from the strategy perspective and the governance perspective. The final theme that I'm reading about, and I really enjoyed it, was two articles in the Wall Street Journal. The first one is about Jeff Zucker, who's the head of CNN, which is now part of WarnerMedia after AT&T bought a lot of media assets in the last year to try to become an over-the-top streamer. The other one is the demise of Quibi, which was the short-form video streaming service developed by Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, formerly of eBay, and tried to become governor of California, obviously a very smart lady, ex-Bain and so on. I don't want to talk about why they failed from a narrow perspective of their product category wasn't great, 
they didn't implement it well. We could do that. And I don't want to talk about Jeff Zucker and what's going to happen for him and why he's supposedly losing power at CNN. What I want to talk about is why this is happening and how you need to think about it. Because everyone's talking about Netflix. But again, we've got to distill the insight. So what is Netflix doing? The macro strategy for Netflix, and they will never talk about it because nobody, because they don't want anyone to know about it, is very clever if you think about it. By Netflix entering the industry and driving up the production volume of new shows, they are sucking talent into their productions, right? So think about this. If Netflix doubles the number of scripted shows, there's not going to be a doubling in the number of technicians and crew members and actors who could supply Netflix. That doesn't happen. There's always a lag. So what happens is Netflix sucks in people and pays top dollar. Two things now happen. One is there's a shortage of supply in the market for people who can make shows. There's a shortage and all these other companies get into streaming. They've got to pay more purely because there's a shortage. But they also have to pay more because Netflix is paying more. So what Netflix has done is it's it's forced an increase in the cost of production. That by itself is not that bad. But what happens when you flood the market with something? What happens when you flood the market with anything? The price goes down. So I subscribe to most streaming channels, whether it's Peacock, Hulu, Amazon Prime Video, which is probably my favorite. Netflix as well. I don't use Netflix as much, but it's there. And there's several others like, and I subscribe to Stars, HBO, and so on through Amazon Prime. But I can tell you right now, I'm never going to watch everything because there's too much. And what's going to happen is that if you're not watching everything and there's too much, you ultimately cancel some. And I do cancel Stars, Epics, and Cinemax most often on Netflix. I always keep Amazon Prime. I keep HBO. I keep Hulu. And I keep Sling. Sling because sports and live shows. But when I cancel those other networks like Stars and so on, those companies don't get revenue. Ultimately, some of them are going to fold. So what Netflix is doing is quite interesting. They're forcing the cost side to go up. And they're commoditizing the output so that the return their competitors get from from this output is not that high to begin with. So if your cost goes up and your revenue drops, there's going to be a shakeup in the sector very, very fast. And what's interesting is not many companies are seeing that. What they do is when Netflix launches a splashy show, they respond by launching more splashy shows, which again, drives up the prices, right? But maybe they shouldn't launch splashy shows. Maybe they should go into low cost shows like documentary shows. Maybe to compete and to make money in the streaming service, you shouldn't actually start a streaming service. You should do what Nickelodeon did in Viacom and decide to supply Netflix and other streamers with content. Maybe you shouldn't even be in the movie production business, but maybe you should help with marketing. The point is this. It's become cool to be an over-the-top means you're streaming on an app or, or internet screen. It's become cool to be a streamer. But everyone that thinks it's cool to become a streamer, when they enter that market, they drive up the cost, they flood the market with content, and they lower the return. And eventually, when a shakeup comes, it's going to be Netflix and a few people who stand. But more importantly, they can buy other assets on the cheap. And that's a strategy people are not seeing about Netflix. And that's a very important thing to see. So as you think about what's happening in the media and so on, it's not just media. You've got to ask yourself, what is the overarching strategy that a company is deploying in my sector? What is the overarching strategy that that banker that I'm competing with for a promotion, what are they deploying to get ahead of me? So you've got to think about those things, right? I want to end up this podcast by mentioning a few things. I recently had another conversation with a one-on-one coaching client, and I was trying to get them to really understand... What does it mean 
to learn the skills of a strategy partner because that's important. What does it mean to be like uh, like Michael, to be like Kevin, to be like Bill? Where do you want to position yourself? I realized that this guy who is very smart, very talented, he didn't go to an Ivy League school or anything like that, but he's, he's brilliant and has been promoted many times under our guidance. What he does and the reason why he's being held back is because he looks at the way a strategy consultant works and that's how he likes to work. He likes to spend a lot of time doing analysis by himself presenting some brilliant analysis and waiting for the accolades and free stuff to be thrown at him because he did such a good job. So what I want to do here is I want, to, I want our audience to understand a few things about what it means to be an analyst and a leader because many of us, many of the listeners are acting like analysts and you can't be an analyst in industry. In fact, you can't even be an analyst at a certain level when, you be, when you're a management consultant. Once you get to a certain level, you have to act like a leader. So let me talk you through what is a day in the life of a leader? A leader controls his or her time. That's very important. No one tells them what to do because they're the leader. They decide what's important and they let other people know. A leader makes numerous decisions while attending meetings, reviewing progress from teams and meeting clients. But really, there's very little time spent alone or even available to sit down for three or four weeks to do some detailed analysis to show everyone that you can act like a McKinsey consultant. Very often, when I was a partner, it was the same. I've got to make decisions without detailed analysis. I don't have the time as a leader to lock myself away for four weeks and complete an analysis, but I must make the correct decision. A leader is expected to analyze issues in minutes or an hour. That is true. When I was a partner, I would have an analyst book a meeting with me to talk me through something on the study, which I don't know much about because I'm the partner. But in a 15 minutes, I've got to really understand what they're doing, ask the right questions, with imperfect data and give them the tools and that few pieces of information that helps them refocus what they're doing. And when I was a partner, I wasn't just dealing with clients. I was responsible for marketing at the firm and so on. And I had to implement new marketing policies and new ways of doing things and so on. A leader has the skills of a partner. And if you look at, for example, if you're an insider, you can look at the corporate strategy and transformation study. If you are an insider who happens to have access to our knowledge management system, you can see and you can use, you can edit and use for yourself the actual slides and reports we use for all of the startups we are using. And you can see that we don't take weeks of analysis before planning a study. The corporate strategy transformation study on insider, the market entry strategy study, the M&A merger study, the entire thinking came together in a day or two. A strategy partner designs the overall recommendation a day with practically no data and analysis. It's just judgment and hypotheses. We offer our thoughts to the engagement team as direction for the team to do the analysis. It's a very counterintuitive approach because what I see is a lot of people in industry who want to learn the skills of a McKinsey consultant or a BCG consultant, they act as if they're, they're a consultant, but you're not a consultant. You should actually learn the skills like a partner who doesn't do most of the work themselves. And this is the skill a leader needs, the ability to analyze and make a decision with very little time, usually just with a sheet of paper and a pencil, and come up with something that's logical and can influence his or her peers and subordinates. If you are a leader, you want to be a leader, always remember this, you are not going to go far. If you can only make decisions after weeks of analysis that you personally led, because you won't have the time to do that. 
you just don't have the time and resources to make decisions like an analyst. You need to think like a strategy partner, how to make decisions quickly, but correct, how to sketch out approach, logic, how to be able to look at people's work and give them critical, insightful feedback. So you have to know what is happening and be able to guide pieces even if you're not directly involved. In. That's what we teach. Leaders are rewarded when they first implement the right decision and generate the returns that's expected. If you want to be a leader and all you're doing is producing analysis, you're not implementing a decision and you're not banking the returns. When you are reviewing the work of people who are helping you, you're seeing work you've never seen before. You've got to zoom in, zoom out, provide feedback in a matter of minutes. You know you are being a leader when you're not working alone because leaders always work in teams, they're always delegating, they're always implementing. You can't do that by yourself. If you're working by yourself, that means you're automatically not delegating. Therefore, you're not a leader. If you're working by yourself, you're probably not implementing. Therefore, you're not a leader. You've got to implement through others, not by yourself. You've got to influence employees, clients, and investors because to implement, you've got to get people to do things they don't want to do. You've got to use the work of analysts. Analysts work for leaders. My final word on leaders is that leaders do not manage a business. They do not manage a team. They do not manage a product. They do not manage a unit. They do not manage a service line. They do not manage a cost center. They do not manage an office. They do not manage anything. Leaders, counterintuitively, but probably should make some sense now, are always building or growing a business. A leader who can only manage something, whatever it is, but cannot grow it, cannot make it better, cannot help this initiative they are managing, help the broader company, is going to be replaced. And to grow or make something better, you're always making a set of decisions. On the other hand, when it comes to an analyst, here's the thing you should know. You should be an outstanding analyst when you are an analyst. Yet the end game is not to be the best analyst in the world. Be purposeful about making the transition to leader. With this uh, one-on-one coaching client, he would show me all the brilliant analysis he did. And the problem is he was only doing analysis. His employer wants to see, hey, you did an analysis. You saw an opportunity. Why in the world didn't you force the company to act on this opportunity? All you did is you found an opportunity, which you then filed away somewhere. You found another opportunity with brilliant analysis, which you filed away. You then did a third analysis and a fourth analysis. And it's now two years later... And all you're doing is analysis. You're not going to get promoted. That's the difference between an analyst and a leader. You have to be purposeful about making the transition to leader. At the day in the life of an analyst, he spends days planning an analysis, collecting data and completing the analysis, prepares slides and a written report. Most of the work is done alone on a laptop. That's true. I mean, you may speak to people for data, but you're pretty much self-contained. It's all about the analysis. The primary job is completing an analysis. An analyst is expected to complete an analysis over weeks, and present a conclusion. The skills you need at this level are not that complicated, even though if you search the internet, most people are searching for this low-level analytic skills. The highest level skills here you need is at the associate level. That's the skill level when you just join as an MBA graduate. Develop issue trees, prioritize branches, develop hypotheses, list data needs, prepare exhibits, develop a story about, prepare focus interviews, collect data, and then hopefully come up with an insight. Analysts need to know the skill of structured problem solving and with some rudimentary ability to manage time and resources to collect and test data over several days. Analysts are not rewarded like leaders. Leaders are rewarded for implementation and banked benefits. Analysts, on the other hand, are rewarded for an analysis, a report, a recommendation, a conclusion. I mean, how many 
analysts review the work of anyone else above the level of an analyst. Analysts will run an analysis alone, almost never measure an implementation. They influence the manager and they provide the leader with some study they've done. Analysts need to learn the rigor and approach to analyzing and solving business problems. But analysts are not leaders. And I want you, as you learn all these skills from myself and other partners, and I've got many stories about studies I've done and, and teams I've led, and I always break it down into really extensive details so you know step by step, here's the thing you've got to know. Your goal is to be a leader. Some of the other things we've done is we've recently released an educational novel called Mavis, which is set in a dystopian future where a young teenage girl needs to solve a productivity paradox. It's our most ambitious novel, and it teaches productivity in a very, very creative way. And we've also released the strategy journal, which accompanies succeeding as a management consultant, which is a set of templates and tools to help anyone in industry, consulting, and so on, understand how to solve a business problem. Now, they are currently available on Amazon for a special price. And if you are a loyal client who's always loved our material, finds it useful, buy the book, post a review on Goodreads by 30th of October. And if you mail that receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com along with a copy of the review you left, we will give you complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video course that explain the concepts in a lot more detail. And the video courses are only available during the special launch for the book. And of course, we've got a very big update coming out where we're launching our new knowledge management system where every PowerPoint we've developed for every study, even studies that we've not released yet, will be made available. Proposals will be made available. Letters, workshop packs, all things you can edit and you can use. It'll also have a CRM capability for those clients who manage consulting firms, also project management capability for those of you managing projects. So it's really a big, big advance that we're deploying for insiders who are legible for this new service. So I hope you like Monday morning, 8 a.m., and I'll speak to you next Monday. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.